continue our echo series with the sixth commandment. God says, you shall not commit adultery. This is God's word. So we've been going through the Ten Commandments. Um, now we're at commandment number six. And what we're trying to do as we study the commandments is hold in tension these two ideas. Uh, some would call it law and gospel, but basically what we've been trying to say is God's demands on our life are complete. They are uh, like a straitjacket. They require us to behave a certain way. We've been talking about what those expectations, those demands, that law is on our lives through the Ten Commandments. But we've also been doing it in light of the gospel which God announces to the Israelites and to us before he even gives us the Ten Commandments, which is that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of Egypt. I am yours not because you are behaving, not because you are cleaning up, not because you follow my commandments, but because I unconditionally choose you. You're in. God makes a choice, he acts upon us, and then he asks us, in turn, to live in a way that is a blessing to our neighbor. Now, over this series, we've been kind of focusing, rather than on all the little unique manifestations of how these commandments apply to our lives, we've been looking at the big principles behind them. So last week, we talked about the fact that we have bodies, right? Uh, Two weeks ago, with uh, the fourth commandment, we talked about the concept of authority, Uh, Three weeks ago when we talked about remembering the Sabbath day, we talked about the value of God's word. And I kind of want to do that again today. We're going to talk about the the big principle behind the sixth commandment, but uh, maybe this week's going to be a little bit unique uh, because of what I kind of alluded to in the first reading that we had today. So much of what the sixth commandment speaks to is stuff that happens behind closed doors. And because of that, there is, of course, the temptation to think, well, no one's going to see me, no one's going to get hurt, so I can do whatever I want. But there is also the temptation to not know what God says about those specific unique instances because no one is speaking that truth into your life. Right? For example, if you're somebody who is harsh with your words and you lose your temper, eventually someone's going to tell you that's not okay. But I think a lot of times, because our culture, maybe it's because we're uh, sex-saturated as a culture, or because we kind of have an attitude of, you can do whatever you want to do as long as it's not hurting anybody else, we don't have these conversations about what God has to say. So we will get a little bit specific today. Of course, we can't cover every single thing in detail, or we would be here for hours. So if you do have questions that come out of what I'm saying today, please ask them. Uh, There is a lot of nuance to these things, and I want to get you there, but I only have about half an hour. So uh, let's get started. Uh, If you're following along with a a notes sheet uh, that you grabbed from the back, the first point that we want to do is the, the main point behind the Sixth Commandment. In the Sixth Commandment, God is protecting family. He is protecting family. He's protecting family because family is the foundation of all other things. Family, you maybe have heard, is the foundation of society. This is absolutely true. Family is the foundation of child rearing, of bringing another generation into the world. So God wants to protect family. In fact, he reveals himself to us as family, right? Father and son. And it's not because one person of the Trinity had a baby. No, it's because he sees his relationship as fundamentally one of family. Now, God protects family by protecting marriage. And that's really what God is talking about in the sixth commandment. And you can see it simply by the way that God words the sixth commandment. You know, if I didn't know what the sixth commandment was actually on paper, and I just took the sum total of everything that I have been taught over my life uh, about the sixth commandment, and somebody said, what do you think the sixth commandment is? I would probably say something like, don't have sex with somebody who is not your, your spouse. That's probably what I would have said. 
But God doesn't say, don't have sex with somebody who's not your spouse when he gives us the sixth commandment. He says, you shall not commit adultery. And you might say, is that a distinction without a difference? I actually think there is a difference. Uh, Because adultery is a broader word than simply a sexual union. It comes from the Latin word adulterare, which means to corrupt. Uh, Literally, it means to take something out of its pure form into a corrupted form. We actually still talk this way a little bit. We talk about things like adulterated food, right? Food that doesn't come to us in its natural form, but has been in some way enhanced or changed. And so what God is saying when he says, do not commit adultery, yes, he's going to talk about sexual things, but he's talking in a broader sense about breaking down the institution of marriage. And there are many different ways that you can do that. So let's start by defining what marriage is, and then we'll talk about how it works. Next point on your notes. What is marriage? Marriage is very simply one man and one woman in a covenant for life. It's one man and one woman in a covenant for life. And you might say to yourself, yep, I knew that one. That's a fill in the blank I could have given you before you even put it up on the screen. And that's good. But my question for us today is, do we know how that works? Do we know how that functions? Um, It's kind of like if someone said to me, this is a 767 jet made by Boeing with a a Pratt & Whitney uh, auto, uh, what are the names of the jet jet engines on it? And I would say, yeah, I can tell that that's what that is. I don't know how to fly it, right? Um, You can define marriage, you can know what it is, but have no idea how to fly the thing. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how does God call us to act in order to uphold this institution of marriage. More than just saying, well, let's make sure it's just one man and one woman for the covenant for life. Let's talk about what does that look like. So we're going to do it through three blessings that God gives us in marriage. Old theologians have put these together, and it's been uh, just relatively agreed upon that the three things God wants to give his children through marriage are companionship, chastity, and children companionship, chastity, and children. And you can see those are the three main points on your outline. So that's where we're going to go today. We're going to walk through each of these, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to say, first of all, why is this a blessing? God says it's a blessing. Why is it a blessing? Secondly, how can it be adulterated? How can it be changed? How can it be corrupted to the the detriment of the people involved? And then when we finish, we're going to talk about um, the gospel of this. So it's going to be academic a little bit at first, but we're eventually going to fall into the arms of our Savior Jesus at the end. So let's start with companionship. The first blessing of marriage is companionship. Um, God very clearly wants companionship for his children. Uh, Psalm 68 says that God sets the lonely in families. Companionship is God's answer to the loneliness that we all feel at some point. God baked this into creation. At the beginning, when he was making the world, he said it's not good for a man to be alone. And this is in contrast to how God has made everything else in the world and has said about it, it's good or very good. But then he stops, you have like record scratch, and he says, this is not good though. This is not good that a man would be alone. So God wants companionship for his children. Um, And marriage is for companionship. But someone might say, hold on, pastor. I can have companionship without marriage. I mean, there are, there are numerous couples who live together who are not married, and they have companionship. How can you say that you need marriage in order to have companionship? If you don't think this happens a lot, uh, actually, just in my rec hockey league that I play in, one of the guys in our locker room was getting married this coming weekend, uh, was telling us about how the, the party is going to go, and he said, you know, it's, it's all this complicated stuff. And one of the other guys in the room said, well, you guys have been living together for four years. It's just a formality anyways. That's how people think. 
What's the difference? Living together, being married, it all seems like companionship, doesn't it? Well, God would actually have a different opinion on that. He would say that marriage is a different type of companionship than simply living together with your best friend. And to get around that idea, I want you to realize that there is a spectrum between what God thinks of when he talks about the covenant of marriage, which on the ends has a contract and a consumer relationship. So on the right side of that spectrum, the contract relationship. If you have a contract relationship with somebody, you have a piece of paper that says that you will provide these services or these things for me, and I will in turn provide you with this amount of money. It is a cold agreement. It doesn't matter how you feel about the other person or how you feel about yourself. It is just an agreement. This is just what we're going to do. It's legally binding. On the other side, you have a consumer relationship. A consumer relationship is not driven by a legal agreement. It is completely driven by your feelings. Why do you shop at the grocery store that you shop at? Well, any number of things make you feel good about shopping at that grocery store. Maybe it's well-lit, or the products are particularly fresh, or there's good selection, or it's close to your house, or there's good prices, whatever the thing is. You feel good about shopping at that grocery store, but if you could find another grocery store that would make you feel better because the products were more fresh, or the prices were better, or whatever, you would go there. You have a consumer relationship with them. In the middle, though, is what God calls a covenant. A covenant, on the one hand, is a legal agreement. It is like a contract in that there is no way to get out of it. And yet, it is a legal agreement based on the idea that actually my needs are not what drive our relationship, but your needs are what drive this relationship. And so it is about needs, it is about feelings, but it's not about my needs or feelings. It's about your needs or feelings. I legally bind myself to care about your needs or feelings. Now, some places in the world, and sometimes in the world's history, marriage has fallen into the ditch of being a contract. You might see this most often often in places where you have like arranged marriages or marriages that are part of some sort of political agreement. Um, And it's not that those things aren't bad and that God wouldn't have something to speak to those things, but as far as I can tell, that's not so much a problem here. Um, If it is, come and talk to me. But but what I want to notice and focus on more is that generally, if our culture is going to fall into one of these ditches, it's going to be into the consumer relationship. It's going to fall into the idea that my relationship with you is completely based on my feelings for you. And when my relationship with you, my, my almost marriage, if you want to call it that, is based on my feelings, then you are constantly marketing yourself to the other person. You are not in a relationship that is based on an agreement that you are going to stay together no matter what. You're in a relationship based on the idea that you are going to continue to please me or fulfill my needs or make me feel good about myself. A couple weeks ago, I invoked the wonderfully theologically accurate show, The Bachelor and the Bachelorette, and thank you for those of you who absolved me of watching that show. Um, But last time I said there's something really good about that show, that it talks about authenticity in a relationship, but one of the things that is absolutely atrociously wrong with that show is how often you hear somebody say something like, I love being with you because you make me feel like the best version of myself. Do you understand how narcissistic that is? You exist to make me feel good about me. This relationship that we have is all about me and how I feel and how I think about myself and what I'm doing, and you are a product that I consume in order to help that along. But even if we've never said that, isn't it 
our tendency to be in relationship with other people as long as they're fulfilling some need or making us feel good about ourselves. We have a consumer relationship with one another. So God calls us to something bigger. He calls us to a covenant, a marriage covenant, which is not based on my needs, but based on the other's needs and legally binds me to them. And let me just give you two reasons for why that's awesome. First of all, when you have a covenant relationship with another person, you are able to be yourself. You are able to stop hiding. You are able to take down the facade in a way that you cannot otherwise. If you do not have that agreement that we are going to be together, not because I'm good, but because you love me unconditionally, you can't have that openness. You can then be yourself. You can speak the truth. You can reveal your fears and reveal all these things about you that you would never talk to somebody else about. You can be known all the way to the bottom by somebody with the trust that they're going to stay with you and love you through it. And because you have that kind of trust, that kind of commitment to one another, you can feel a level of love, a profundity to love that you cannot feel anywhere else. The closest we get is with children. Those of you who have children, you know this. You are in a covenant relationship with your children. You are bound to them legally. And that actually produces some of the most profound emotions that you've ever felt in your life, doesn't it? You love those children in a way that you love no one else, maybe. And when those children hurt, maybe even when they lash out at you, you love them more. You lean in. You get closer. Your heart breaks for them. Think about the, the alternative. You're in a dating relationship and the person that you're dealing with starts to lash out at you or act like a proverbial baby. You might think to yourself, maybe I'll keep my distance. Maybe she isn't the one. But with your children, you actually come closer when that happens. The same thing happens in marriage, but even to a greater degree because you have the choice in the matter. Right, children, you didn't really choose them to be exactly the way that they are. But you had an option. You didn't have to choose your spouse, but you did. And because you did, and you did with a covenant relationship, when they lash out, when they break down, when they are a failure, your heart can actually move closer to them, to lean into their trouble, to struggle through it with them. God wants this for us. Because isn't it the love that he showed for us when he went to the cross? Us who were completely messed up, rebels against him, enemies of God, the Bible says. His heart broke for us because he had made a covenant with himself that he would be our God. I am the Lord your God. So how can this companionship that God wants for us in marriage be adulterated? Well, the first is to have no covenant. It is common in our society to not pursue marriage. Uh, whether that's because you're just not really looking or maybe you are with somebody, but you're putting off getting married for any number of reasons, and believe that what you have is basically just as good as marriage, it's not. It's adulterated. The unfortunate thing about many dating relationships that are putting off marriage is they're putting off marriage for one of two reasons. There are many others, but these are the two that I see most often. The first is because they already have a sexual relationship. There's nothing on the other side of marriage for them, at least in their mind, because they already have sexual intimacy with each other. And so they think to themselves, well, what is it? It's, well, it's a formality. Well, God would not have that. We'll talk about this in the chastity section, but sex outside of marriage is not just like, oh, that's bad. It's actually destructive on your life. But maybe what I find even more with couples who are putting off marriage is it's all about money. 
We don't have the money. We don't have the money to live the way that we want to live. We don't have the money to have our fancy, beautiful, Instagram-worthy wedding. It's about money. To which I would ask, who's your God? Is it the Trinity or Mammon? Does the God who says, this is a blessing that I want to give you, does he rule in your life? Or does the God who says you need to um, make your subscribers or your like, the people who like you happy, is that your God? You know, it's amazing. You can, you can ask many, uh, especially older couples, how many of them started their marriage off with next to nothing? I, I realize sometimes they're exaggerating and they're the people who walked uphill both ways to school in the snow and whatever. But, but it is true that generally a generation ago, and of course th- times are different, but generally people were more willing to say, like, forget about the money. I just love you. But of course, a TV, an Instagram, a a YouTube culture has taught us that we need to live up to this standard of living in order to be okay. And we've lost the covenant. The second way companionship can be adulterated is to not be a companion to your spouse. You can be married, but not be living out the covenant. You can be legally bound, but not a companion to the person who lives in your house. And this is going to look different to every single person, but uh, the general principle that God would have us follow is that your spouse needs to be your best friend. Your spouse needs to be your best friend. Again, best friendships look different, but that person who you're legally bound to needs to be your best friend. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. Maybe it's the kids, maybe it's work, maybe it's any number of things that drive you apart. You live in the same house, you're legally bound to each other, but you barely know what's going on in each other's life. God would say this is not okay. You're called to be that person's companion, to know what's going on in their life, to love them through it. You don't have to do it my way, but in our house, we have date night every week. Thursday night, my phone goes off, Johanna's phone goes off, and we do our best to spend time together, to talk about whatever's been on our minds, whatever's been happening during the week, whatever we want to talk about at all. And that's been really beneficial, to give us the chance to be companions with one another. And by the way, if you want that once a week, especially if you're a family with children, who I know make it a little bit harder to do something like that, we will babysit your kids. Like, we will do it. We won't charge anything. Just let us babysit your kids because we love your marriages and we want them to flourish. And if you don't want us to babysit your kids, you could ask Leora. She just babysat our kids and she did a really good job too. So we have ways for you to make this happen. The third way that companionship can be adulterated is a companion to someone else. This is a really interesting one um, because it's kind of the the antithesis or the mirror image of number two. Uh, What can happen is we can be a companion to our spouse, but we can also hold hold on to a special companion relationship to somebody else. I think there are, are two ways that you can think of this happening. One, of course, I think easily comes to mind, which is an affair. And you can have a thing like an emotional affair. You may never take your clothes off with a person, but you have made them functionally your companion, and God's not okay with that. But I think what's actually more common for many of us is that the companions that we hold on to are from our family of origin, from our family of origin. When God gives marriage to his people, he says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and becomes united to his wife, and they become one flesh. He says that part of being married is leaving your family of origin. Now, in our culture, we might say, well, duh, that's what the kids do, right? They get married and they move out. That's not really what God means. He means that you are cutting off that companionship relationship with your parents, brothers, and sisters. It's not that you're going to not call them or not see them, but that they are not definitive in how you live your life. 
Maybe to make this really practical for you, when I got married, my dad said, don't call me about your marriage. Not because he doesn't care about my marriage, he loves it, but because he knows that he can't be the one who speaks truth into my marriage because he's my dad and he's biased. And even if he's not biased, my wife might perceive him as biased, somebody else might perceive him as biased. I have to cut that relationship off, at least in that facet. How might this happen? You're having trouble with your spouse and you call your mom. Or you're thinking about how you're going to raise your kids and you think about how your parents raised you. And you do one of two things. You either say, we have to raise our kids exactly like my parents raised me. Or, we have to raise our kids exactly the opposite way of the way my parents raised me. Both of those are not letting go of your parents. Both of those are letting them still be a companion in your life. You are with your spouse. You are a new family. Your old family, yes, you love them. Yes, they are there. Yes, they, have the, they are worthy of honor, God even says. But they are not your companions. The final way, then, is maybe the way that's most obvious, and that's divorce. Uh, God hates divorce. God does not want divorce to happen at all. And Jesus actually ran into this in his ministry. Some people said to him, um, you know, why did Moses allow us to have certificates of divorce, to divorce our wives? And, God said, and Jesus says to them, because your hearts were hard. Because you don't care about God's word. That's why you get divorced. Now, I realize there sometimes are good reasons to get divorced, and the Bible gives you those. It says sexual immorality, right? You're not being faithful to the sexual union that you have with your spouse. Abandonment, you throw away the marriage relationship that you have with your spouse, or abuse that the person you are married to is abusing you. Those are good reasons to get a divorce, God says. It still doesn't make it okay. That's a bad thing that happened. And maybe it's the best way to mitigate a problem, but God's not okay with it. It adulterates what God gives us in companionship. So that's companionship. Next we have chastity. Chastity. Chastity is a word we don't really use that often. Um, and it's kind of unfortunate because probably the word we use more often is abstinence. We say, don't have sex. <laughs> um, but chastity is a, a better word because it is broader than just not having sex. Uh, it is a word that says, hold on to God's ideal of sex, both whether you are married or if you are not. It is to see it as the gift that God gave us to be used in certain ways. And maybe to understand the beauty of the word chastity, I want you to think about fire for a little while. A fire is a beautiful thing. It is a thing that can warm people. It can gather a group. It is mesmerizing. You can't stop watching it. You want to be around it. It can bring life into the world by keeping your body warm or cooking food. Fire is a beautiful thing. And God says that sex is a beautiful thing. Sex in the right context is like fire. It is beautiful. It is mesmerizing. It can bring people together. It can cause life to happen. Some people don't believe this, by the way. If you grew up maybe in a more conservative theological context, you might have been taught that sex is bad. Don't even think about it. Don't even talk about it. That's not how God talks. You realize the Bible starts in a nudist colony, where God brings two people together and says, you two are supposed to become one flesh. And that is an innuendo. And throughout the Bible, the same thing is true. In the proverb, it says, may your fountain be blessed, which is also an innuendo. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. And don't worry, it's more explicit than that. I just gave you one of the more tame verses. And where does the Bible end? The Bible ends with God talking about himself like a bridegroom coming to his bride. And you know what happens on a wedding night. God sees this gift of sex as this beautiful thing that he wants for us. 
Unfortunately, a lot of times we're not willing to talk about it. And I realize there's a place for propriety. But the world is talking about sex way more than we are. We need to talk about it with a biblical view and show it to be the beautiful gift that God has given us. But you know that the opposite is true as well. Fire is not always beautiful. Sometimes fire is destructive. The same chemical reaction that can bring life and joy and and, uh, community can also bring destruction. And the Bible says the same thing is true about sex. While sex can be a thing that brings joy and comfort to people, it also is a thing that can bring destruction. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, there's a little bit of scholarly debate about exactly what that means, but I don't think anybody in this room would disagree that that means it's serious. That this is a big deal. We can have a debate about exactly what it means to sin against your own body, but God cares deeply about this and sees that there is a high potential for destruction when we use God's gift of sex outside the way he prescribed it for us. So how can this beautiful gift of chastity be adulterated? The first is sexual activity before marriage. I alluded to this in the companionship point, but God would say that any sexual activity before marriage, not just sexual intercourse, but any sort of use of your sexual organs outside of marriage is not okay. God gave that gift to us to be used within the covenant of marriage, and unfortunately, it is very common in our society for this to happen. But we have to say that's not okay. Maybe another very common way that this is practiced is living together before marriage. And even some people would say, well, we're living together, but it's just to save on the rent. We're not actually having a sexual relationship. Remember what Paul said, flee from sexual immorality. Or what he says in another place in the book of Ephesians, let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Live such a life that no one would look at you and even question whether you were being sexually immoral. The second is an affair. Um, I I have the statistics here, and I want to make sure I give them to you because it it just floored me. 10% of Canadians admit to having an affair, and 25% admit to having considered it. That's a pretty big number, at least higher than I expected. This is a common thing. And like I said, it's not just that you would take off your clothes with somebody who's not your spouse, but that you would emotionally connect with somebody and make them the companion of your life that is nearly the same as having an affair. Third, porn and masturbation. Pornography is a huge problem. And it is almost the worst of these because it completely uh, disconnects you from other human beings. Uh, It makes sex into completely a thing for me and my pleasure. Uh, If the statistics are right, almost half of all Christians struggle with pornography. They watch pornography at least once a month. That's both men and women. One in seven pastors struggle with pornography. The average age that a child first sees hardcore pornography is 12. That's the average, which means there are many who are younger than that. But this affects marriage, right? More than, all, more than half of all divorces report one party having an obsessive interest in pornography. Nearly 70% of all extramarital affairs include finding a party on the internet. And the effects, even if that's not where you end up, are long-term. The studies show that pornography is putting unrealistic expectations into the minds of people about what sex looks like, what human bodies look like, what sexual performance is like. And so even if you never end up in an affair, 
Your, your brain is, is literally changed to think about sex differently. Maybe the, to give you the last statistics on this, 88% of porn on the internet includes physical aggression. Does that sound like a loving relationship? If you struggle with pornography, I want you to know that there's hope, and we'll talk about the greater hope of the gospel uh, later in this sermon. But I do want you to know that very specifically, there's a ministry that our church body runs that I am the content editor for, which is called Conquerors Through Christ. ConquerorsThroughChrist.net is the website. We will help you if you're struggling with pornography or if you know somebody who is struggling with pornography or if you're a parent who wants to make sure that your kids are prepared for that first exposure, which is probably coming around 12 years old. We're there for you. We'll watch out for you. We'll walk with you because this is a problem. The final way then is maybe uh, unexpected, but chastity can be adulterated by an intimacy-less marriage. Um, God wants you to have sex if you're married. He says it very clearly in 1 Corinthians 7. He says that the husband has a duty to his wife and the wife to her husband, that the man does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife and the wife does the same to her husband. Now, I, I word it intimacy-less marriage because I realize that as you get older, sometimes sex is not as easy as it was when you were younger for whatever reason. But God wants that physical intimacy that he gave you in the gift of sex, no matter what age you are, no matter how long you've been married. And you might say, that's hard work. It is. But aren't the best things in life at the end of hard work? Maybe it's not easy right away. Maybe you have to work at it. Maybe you have to have some difficult conversations, but God wants this for you because he wants the beauty of you being fully known emotionally, psychologically, physically, and being unconditionally loved because it's a picture of him and us as Christ in the church. Now, I realize that brings up a whole lot of questions. and I'm glad to answer them some other time, but this is one of the ways that chastity can be adulterated. Which brings us to the last of the blessings of marriage which is children. Uh, just this week, Freakonomics Radio, which is a podcast that I listen to, a very popular podcast, maybe you, you listen to it as well, um, brought out an episode where they essentially said it is just statistically undeniable that two parents are better than one. There was a book written by an author, her last name is Kearney. Uh, she wrote the book called The Two-Parent Privilege. And basically, her book uh, lays out this idea that uh, no matter what the context, if a child has both parents in the household and married, they have far better outcomes. Uh, this is why generally governments have cared about marriage, why you have to register your marriage with the government, because uh, a government wants society to flourish, and the governments have realized over time that two-parent households are better for children. Um, if you look at it just from a sociological standpoint, what's the value of marriage? Well, to a society, it's to say, we're going to have this helpless human being who's going to come into the world, and we want them to have the best possible outcomes. And that comes from having both parents in the household. Now, I thought this was really interesting, and the reason I bring up Freakonomics is generally they're kind of more an um, ideologically left-leaning podcast, and that's fine until you realize this idea that two parents in the household is generally an ideologically right idea. And yet those who would be on the opposite side of the ideological spectrum admit, this is really the case. It is good for children to have both parents in the home. And what I thought was really interesting about this episode is at the end of it, they're having this conversation of like, well, you know, a lot of theological communities have been saying this for a long time. And the lady, Kearney, who wrote the book, she basically says, yeah, well, it can't be that, but I don't know what it is. 
Brothers and sisters, we know the answer. The God who created the world, who fashioned each of us in our mother's womb, and made that happen with the presence and work of a father, wanted a father and mother to be there for the children who are born. But the Bible says this, right? You know that Psalm 127 says, children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And he continues in Psalm 128, which comes right after it. He says, blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life, and may you see your children's children. Peace be on Israel. Proverbs 17 says, children's children, grandchildren, are a crown to the aged, and parents are the pride of their children. The Bible is clear. Children are a blessing. And you who are parents, you know that. Of course, having kids is hard. It's challenging. It messes with your schedule. It messes with your budget. It messes with your relationships. But there is something profound about holding a child who is your own in your arms, hugging them when they're crying, being there for them in all of the moments of their life. Unfortunately, our society doesn't want to believe that. It wants to teach us that children aren't wanted. And there are really three ways that children aren't wanted in our society. The first way is they are not wanted before they come. Whether it is abortion, whether it is the use of the pill, there are many couples who say, I don't want children. And while there might be some good reasons to not want children, they are few and far between. Because most of them center on me. I don't want to. I don't have the capacity. I don't want to spend my money like that. I, I, I. Usually when a couple comes to me and asks, is the Bible okay with me not having any more children? I usually ask, why don't you want more children? And very often the answer is something about me. Now I realize, if you're going to die in pregnancy, maybe it's okay to not have children. If you really are about to have a mental breakdown because of your children, like maybe it's okay not to have children. But most of the time we focus on ourselves. And we say, I don't want children. The second way they're not wanted is when they come. We have children because we like the idea of it. It's like getting a new puppy, but you realize that they grow up and that they require care and they require discipline and they require a whole lot of time. And so what do many of us do? Ship them off to daycare. Let somebody else raise them. Don't worry about them, even if they are in our home. Let the internet raise them. Send them a device and say, get out of my hair. And it's not that putting your kids in daycare is inherently sinful. Sometimes you have to do that. And it's not that the internet or your devices are inherently sinful. But let me ask you, do you want your children or not? Children are the greatest blessing that God will give you. It's not free time. It's not more money. It's not a better job. Children. And the last way that children are not wanted is by everybody else. You know, there's an old joke that pastors uh, tell about how, uh, is your church one of those churches where when a baby cries, people turn their heads? Like if a baby cries in your church and everybody turns around to shush the baby or glare at the mother for letting that baby make noise in church. Many of you have been at this church longer than me, so you know how it is, but my sense is that that's not true here, and God be praised for that. We got a lot of kids, and sometimes you guys are noisy, but we love it because God says you are a blessing. 
And so what I would ask all of us to consider is do we want other people's children? Maybe your children are moved out. Maybe you're not married, you don't have any children. But do you love the other people, the other children who are in here? You know, that Freakonomics uh, podcast was really interesting to me because uh, one of the things that it said was, two parents is the best, but more parents is better. Now, they, they didn't say what you might think that means, which is that we should have polygamous marriages with all sorts of parents all in marriage together. No, they actually said the best way for a child to be raised is with two parents who that child belongs to and a whole host of other adults around that family who are loving and supporting those parents and that child. And is that not what we are poised to do in this room? The ratio of children to adults in this room is such that we could have parents for these children and numerous other adults around them who could love them, who could care for them, who could hold a baby, which I know happens, who could watch over a child while the mother is taking care of another one. I would just encourage us to think about what does that look like? Now, I know I can speak for my family that we are very blessed because I have to stand up here during church. My wife is by herself and and many of you assist her in watching our kids during worship. Let's double down on that. Let's want the children that are here. Let's have it be so that a family could walk in here and think we are so comfortable We're not worried about our kids making noise. We're not worried about making sure our kids behave because these people love children. So those are the three blessings, which leads us to a word for single folks. (laughs) Because some of you are not married. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, that was a whole bunch of really interesting stuff, Pastor, but it doesn't apply to me. And I understand. Um, The church has a tendency to talk a whole lot about marriage and not talk a lot about singleness. And this is unfortunate because our history is actually that the Christian church was the first place really in the history of the world where single people were affirmed and said, it's okay that you're single. The assumption in the Roman Empire, the first century when Christianity was getting started, was that if you were single, you were a prostitute. You had to get married. In fact, one of the Roman emperors said that if your husband died, you had to be married within two years or you'd pay that extra tax. But Christianity said, you don't have to be married. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, I wish you could all be like me and not be married because there's a lot of trouble in marriage. It's a challenge to love another person in a covenant, especially when they and you are sinful. And so here's my word to you single folks. Uh, Paul gives us this really interesting section of of 1 Corinthians 7, which we studied last time in our uh, Bible study on Tuesday nights about marriage, sex, and singleness. He says, because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? In other words, are you married? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. And Paul is not saying, if you're married, forget about your marriage. But he is saying that if you're single, don't worry about trying to find a spouse. If you're married, don't worry about trying to always figure out how everything in your marriage could possibly work perfectly because you have a higher allegiance. Or if you want to fill in a blank, write this down. Marriage is relatively unimportant. It's not that it's not important. It's just relatively unimportant. When you consider that the God of the universe will bring you to be at his side like a a bridegroom brings his bride to be at his side for eternity, whether you have somebody in your life to call husband or wife or not, your God is a spouse to you. Your God is the one who loves you and accepts you and brings you in in a way that no other human being could possibly do. So here's my advice. If you're single, 
Stop building up marriage to be the idol that many of us think it is. That if only I got married, then I would be happy. If only I was married, then I would be okay. If only I was married, then I would fulfill all these longings that I have. God gave you those things. But if he hasn't given you a spouse, it's because he wants to get you to focus on him a little bit more so that you can step into that covenant, not thinking about your own needs, but about the needs of someone else. And if you're single, realize that you are an amazing blessing to the church. Uh, The amount of time that I would have free if I didn't have kids and a wife would allow me to essentially function like a second pastor. But here I am, and here many of you are, married, loving your spouses, loving your kids. But some of you are not, which means you are empowered and free to be an amazing blessing to the people around you. I encourage you to pray about that. So let's finish with Jesus. Let's fall into the arms of our Savior. The Old Testament, God gives some amazing pictures of his love. Um, he, He gives us this picture in the book of Jeremiah. He says that this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. The covenant, the promise, the marriage relationship after that time. He says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. God made a covenant with you that he will always forgive your sins, that he will be your God and you will be his people. And it's not about whether you're performing or fulfilling his needs, but you are his. He continues later in that same book. He says, this is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites who are priests ministering before me can be broken. And David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. God says, if you can stop the sun from shining, if you can stop the moon from reflecting the light of the sun, then you can break my covenant. But good luck, you can't. He says in the book of Isaiah, as a young man marries a young woman, so your builder will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And Paul in Ephesians says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This is how your God loves you. And you might might have thought through all those lists of ways that these blessings of marriage can be adulterated and you think to yourself, I maybe have adulterated the majority of those things. God forgives you. God accepts you. God has made a covenant with you. You are free. And if you want to live a more God-pleasing life, a life of greater companionship to your spouse, a life of greater chastity, a love of your children, then you have to be enamored with this kind of love. We saw it, right, from Joseph in the text from Genesis 39. He said that I cannot do this wicked thing. I cannot sin sexually because of God. Because God is so beautiful. God is so powerful. God is my God. And you might be beautiful and the moment might be right and the feelings are churning, but I love God. And that's going to be hard. But what we see from another text in Genesis is that it's possible. Joseph's dad, Jacob, uh, wanted a spouse. He was one of these single people longing for a spouse. And he found a woman named Rachel, and he was in love with her. 
The problem was Rachel was under the care of her uncle Laban, or his uncle Laban, excuse me. And so Jacob made a deal with Laban and said, I'll work seven years in return for the marriage to your younger daughter, Rachel. Well, Laban says to him, it's better that I give her to you than some other man, so stay here with me. And Jacob worked seven years to get Rachel. But here's the important piece. They seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. The struggle to live a God-pleasing life under the sixth commandment, it becomes a little bit easier when we love God that much. And so what you've failed to do against the sixth commandment or what you've committed against the sixth commandment, repent of it today. Know that your God loves you and accepts you. And now live a life focused on him and in love for your neighbor. Remember that Christ loves you like a bridegroom loves his bride. And enjoy the happily ever after, the only real happily ever after that will ever happen. Let's pray. Jesus, work through your Holy Spirit to make our our marriages a place of your beauty. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for us, help us as husbands to love our wives that same way. As the church submits to Christ, lead us who are women to serve our husbands and submit to them in that same beautiful relationship. Help us to raise our children, to know your word, to see the picture of your love expressed in the love of parents. Help those of us who do not have children in the home anymore to be a support and blessing to those who do. And finally, we ask that for the many sins that we may feel guilt over, whether it is a sexual sin that we've committed or how we haven't loved our spouse the way that you command, show us your grace. Show us your loving face. Remind us of your kindness and your covenant that you will be our God even when we are not acting like your people. Amen.